going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Greetings and salutations, my friends. A happy Tuesday. Hope all is well with you and yours. I'm going to start things off, and and I love, I say it every time as I get into the booth and Rob's sitting here as we're doing the, the transaction. It's a big booth in here, so you've got a few different computers, and some of us share computers. And I don't know if you do this in your own workspaces or not, but you ever get to your desk and someone else has been on it, and they haven't logged out of everything, and I always wonder, what would you do? I mean, you can have some fun with Facebook. You can post some some funny thing that people will go, okay, clearly that's not you, and you, you left your, your Facebook open and somebody put up a status about, how about, yeah, how, do, how, do you, how would you handle that? Guess who kept everything open today? Danielle Smith. How great would it be to post something on Twitter about how she'll be openly endorsing the NDP, or yeah, the NDP. Just think about that. How much traction would that get? How much attention would that get? Her email's also open. Text me, 403-974-8255. I had a little bit of a brain freeze there as I'm conjuring up ideas on what I should do right now. It's going to be fun. Uh, coming up on the show today, a whole lot, to be honest, and it's going to be a lot of business, I think, more than anything else. A lot of people wondering about the current hiring climate in our city and in our province. A lot of people saying, oh, it's not good out there. Or is it? Maybe a bit of a lukewarm feeling heading into Q2. Manpower has put out a new report saying, actually, there's some cautious optimism to the hiring climate here in Alberta. We're going to get an update on that in just a couple of minutes. We're also going to talk taxes. How good is the situation here in Canada and province by province versus our American counterparts? New report from the Fraser Institute saying, yeah, it's not looking good in Canada, but I do beg a question, and it has to do with health care. We used to pay health care premiums here in this province. We don't anymore. So is that factored in because the private sector takes care of it or the person takes care of it in the States? It's not attached to your taxes like it is here there are other things that are covered different uh, depending on the jurisdiction that you're living in. So we'll chat with the Fraser Institute about that and get down to how they came up with these numbers and why they think that can- uh, Canada is lagging behind. Pro- all the provinces are lagging behind as well. City police releasing some information on a Bitcoin fraud in case you've been buying into that idea. Lauren Pullen from Global News will join us after 4 o'clock to talk about what police are saying and some of the warnings that they are are handing out to Calgarians. Speaking of warnings, a lot of talk in the last couple of days about all the water on city streets and where is that water going to go? We have water everywhere. City doing an update on that story today. We're going to bring in uh, an official from the city after 5 o'clock to answer a few more questions and give you some more context in terms of some of the the answers that they were giving earlier today. And we'll stick with uh, city politics as well near the end of the show as well today. Drew Farrell was joined by a number of other uh, stakeholders when it comes to accessibility. And she does these tours every year to kind of get a gauge as how accessible 
uh, parts of our city are, especially in the downtown core. Did the tour today, and I'm going to chat with Drew just about how that tour has changed over the last three years since she started it and what she learned on the tour today. So a whole lot to get to, but we're going to start things off talking the climate when it comes to hiring in our city next here on Calgary Today. How are we feeling as business owners? Are we wanting to hire people? Can we hire people? It seems as though there's a lot of jobs out there, but what, and yet there seems to be a lot of people looking for jobs. So where's the disconnect here? Manpower Group did an employment outlook survey saying the uh, her current climate uh, cur- current hiring climate, there we go, is cautiously optimistic. Joining us now from Manpower is Ahmed Borhat. Uh, Ahmed, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Hey, guys. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You've kind of done a little bit of number crunching and a little bit of figuring out uh, the, the climate of, of what employers are looking for, looking ahead to come 2019, and what you guys find? So uh, nationally, for this is just for Q2 2019, we released a survey every quarter. Uh, for Q2 2019, uh, nationally for Canada, we see a 10% net employment outlook. So overall, 16% of employers are planning to hire and only 3% expect to let go. The remaining 80 are staying status quo. So that's a, a good news story for all of Canada. The biggest winner is out east. Uh, Quebec has the highest hiring outlook right now at 18% with Ontario and Atlantic Canada at 10%. Uh, Western Canada, we're right behind them at 9%. Um, breaking it down to Alberta level, um, Calgary, Red Deer, Edmonton all have positive hiring climates as well. The word we're using is cautiously optimistic. Um, Calgary has, let's quickly run down the numbers for Calgary, Edmonton, Red Deer. Calgary is 10% planned to hire, 4% of employers plan anticipate cutbacks, net employment outlook of plus 8%. Uh, Red Deer is 13% of employers plan to hire, 13% anticipate cutbacks, net employment outlook of 5%. And Edmonton is 16% of employers plan to hire, 4% anticipate cutbacks, and net employment outlook of 10%. All these numbers are still in the positives uh, for the net employment outlook. Calgary is the best news story, though, just because based on last quarter and Q2 2018, it actually went up by three points. So Calgary's got the most optimistic approach for Q2 2019, um, but overall, it's it's a it's a good news story. Are does your stir, uh, does your survey go into the details around why the cautious optimism or why things seem to be? I don't want to say turning around because we're still we're still battling through quite a few things here, but it for seems sure. though it's a little rosier maybe than than maybe what it has been. For sure, and and there's a lot of factors that play into that. The the world of work is is always changing, right? Every day it's changing. Um, the words we like to use are, are flexibility and elasticity, being able to adapt to the ever-changing world of work. I don't have the exact answers to what's changing, why it's, it's cost-optimistic, but there's a, there's a bigger dynamic, a bigger paradigm that's, that's in the works right now. Like If you look at Stats Canada, you know, Q1, Canadian job growth actually picked up. And in Q1, in end of, by the end of Q1, we, you know, February, we added 56,000 jobs in Canada, and almost 4,000 of those were in Alberta, with majority of them being full-time. The problem, a big kind of paradigm we're facing right now, we're actually facing at a, at a be- much better level now, is employers are still finding it hard. They're still struggling to fill the roles. And that's where that, the big umbrella comes up, and that's a talent shortage slash skills gap. So right now in Canada, 41% of employers 
state they can't fill their open roles. Top two reasons, lack of applicants and lack of skill, applicable skill sets. So there's actually a bigger picture with the whole role of work in terms of there's a lot of people looking for work and there's a lot of employers looking to hire people, but there's a, a mismatch in the skills. So understanding what, so there's two pieces to this. As a job seeker, you know, what, understanding what your skill sets are versus what are the in-demand skill sets in bridging that gap is going to be super, super crucial. Obviously, understanding what's the market saying, what are the realistic expectations in terms of wages and salary, what are the skill sets needed. Um, so that's for the, the job seeker piece. For the employer piece, it's understanding right now it's hard to, with everything evolving so quickly, especially with technology and, and softwares and programs and this and that, it's, it's very difficult to find someone just jump in and know everything. So the employer side of things, it's that mindset change of instead of being a, a consumer of talent, it's being a creator of talent. Invest in that training and development piece. Because um, a lot of the, you'll find a lot of the pieces that employers are looking for and a lot of pieces that job seekers need to get, they already have. As In terms of skill sets and softwares and programs, those are skills that you can train. But the soft and hard human people skills are what, what are going to be crucial for this, the future world of work. One of the things that has been bandied about in our newsroom is, is there a salary expectation that goes with that split as well? Those who are out of work, looking for work, they were making a certain amount of money. They had a certain lifestyle expectation. And when they look at the job market, there's nothing that really uh, bridges that gap for them. Is that something that you've been able to look into on that front? For sure. So we talk, we have this conversation, like we do, we talk with hundreds of job seekers and employers every day. So there's two pieces of that. So one, understanding what's a realistic, realistic expectation. Obviously, we hear stories all the time. Oh, I was making this much money a couple of years ago at this position, that position. The market's changed. You know, those positions don't exist anymore. So it's understanding that you have to be more realistic based on what the market conditions are, what the market intel is telling you, um, and, and being realistic. So we have those conversations with people on a daily basis trying to understand you know, if you want to get into those higher positions and get that job security, the key word is upskilling. You have to upskill. You can't depend on your skill sets from three, five, ten years ago to get you into the future world of work. Right now, with you know things just STEM um, booming, so STEM is science, technology, engineering, mathematics, manufacturing. There's such a high demand for for the future, going tech and automated and IT and this stuff. So those skill sets are, are, are mandatory for everyone going forward to stay up to par with what the in-demand skills are, right? So it, it's hard to say. There's no real research behind the, the, the salary expectations in terms of everyone knows the market will dictate what's going on. But if you want to stay competitive in the market and get those higher wages, it's about upskilling, making sure you're staying up to date with all the in-demand uh, softwares and programs and technology. That's going to be crucial to not only get those higher wages, but also get that job security as well. When you talk about the uh, the cautious optimism that is out there, is there a lot more optimism in the startups and the entrepreneurial side of it versus, say, oil and gas, for example? Do you break it down by uh, the company size or organization size or even the field in which they are working in? For sure. So as per our results for Q2 2019, Medium and large-sized companies seem to have the best optimism for hiring. Um, not saying that the, the micro and small companies aren't, but their outlook is just not as optimistic. But the medium-sized companies, so the 50 to 249, and then the large 250-plus employees, 
those have the highest optimism going forward. Um, there's a lot of things in the works right now. There's a lot of projects that are getting bid on. There's a lot of things that are in the works right now. The biggest thing to understand is actually it's just diversifying the assets and diversifying what's actually we're, we're going, we're bidding on and what we're working on and what's coming to the, to the city, uh, the province, I should say. Um, so it's the bigger companies seem to have a, a more optimistic approach for Q2. Um, what the exact data is behind that, I'm not too, I can't give you an exact answer. We have our opinions, but not a factual answer for you on that one. Mm, I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark and say maybe a provincial election might have a few people thinking, well, if things change around, maybe there's a, a little bit of a light at the end of, end of the tunnel. I'd imagine that might be one of the uh, possible reasons. It's a factor for sure. And with it coming so soon, like, you know, before the end of May, they're saying it's it's going to be, a, it, that's going to change the, the the whole land that could change the landscape of the, of the world of work in Alberta for sure. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Uh, Ahmed, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you. Ahmed Borhat is with Manpower as we dive into what businesses, according to the ones that they surveyed anyways, are saying about whether they think they're going to be hiring in the next little while, or if they think they're going to be cutting back. And it seems like there's this, again, cautious optimism that things are turning and looking up. Now, whether or not that's going to change come the writ dropping and the eventual election results, I guess time will tell. A lot of people weighing in on that on the text line, 403-974-8255. We'll dive into those. We'll also dive into what I should have done because I was a nice guy this time. I didn't do anything with Danielle's Twitter or email, but she does it a lot. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. You always stand up and take notice when you see something along the lines of Canadians pay higher personal income taxes than Americans at virtually every income level. That from the Fraser Institute. Uh, the author behind that is senior fellow Robert P. Murphy, and he joins us now on the program to dive more into the Alberta numbers, I think. Uh, Robert, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. At first glance, when you dive into this report, you're talking a lot about Canada versus the U.S. under a bigger umbrella. And I'm wondering, can you break it down for us when it comes to the picture here in Alberta? Well, sure. So Alberta in particular was one of the most depressing um, provinces in terms of what we were looking at in this study. Because back in 2015, they made a, a significant change to their to the provincial income tax code that up till then it had been just a single rate of 10%. And then all of a sudden now they're introducing a multi-tiered thing where they have a 10, 12, 13, 14, and 15% brackets. So definitely, you know, they're certainly not only increasing the top rate, but also bringing in more of a, a structure there. And so, yeah, what our study found was even though Alberta still is okay relative to the other provinces, but in an international comparisons, whether you look at an income in terms of someone making 50000 150000 or 300000 all of the Canadian provinces do worse than every single U.S. state in terms of the highest um, income tax percent burden. Uh, and so, yes, Alberta there, even though, again, it's it's not so bad relative to the provinces, still looking at it, it, it would be you would have a lower tax rate in any state you chose, even California, than you would at Alberta in many of those income ranges. Talk a little bit about the uh, the issues at hand. I guess we are heading into a provincial election here, and there's been a lot of talk about corporate taxes and whether they'll be dropped, and there's been a lot of talk about whether we need to drop uh, per, uh, personal taxes as well. What are the, how far would they have to drop, I guess, to make them more competitive with their our neighbors to the south? 
Well, sure. So just to give you um, an example, so uh, for somebody who's making $300,000 Canadian, and so that's, you know, someone who's a high-income individual, entrepreneurial type, but, you know, not with a super rich, a, a, someone who's getting a, either a bonus salary or starting a business, that sort of person, Alberta right now faces a total federal and provincial rate of 47%, whereas in the U.S., um, you know, even something like California, it's, it's only 44% there. So you see there's a significant difference. So I would say for Alberta policymakers, again, just to be competitive in the, you know, even the high-tax U.S. states, they would want to reduce it at least by several percentage points of that top uh, marginal income tax rate. One question that's been brought to my attention has been about health care. And we, at least here in Alberta, we had health care premiums for a while. Is that factored in because in the states you don't have, uh, your taxes aren't going towards, uh, or, or talk us through that process, I guess, and, and what is included when it comes to taxes versus things that are not necessarily taxed the same way uh, stateside? Okay, sure. So that's a great question. And you're right, many people we've seen like on social media also have raised that question. Um, so to be clear, what our study is looking at, we're not including other things implicitly. We are just looking at the statutory tax rates. But I think a lot of Canadians don't realize this, that yes, the U.S., the private sector shoulders a lot of the burden of health care expenditures, but the U.S. spends a lot more. If you just ask how much does the U.S. federal government and the states spend on health care, is a fraction of GDP, it's comparable to what you know can, the Canadians spend in terms of federal and provincial level. So it's not that the U.S. government spends less in the private sector, it's just the U.S. spends a lot more. And, you know, we can argue about, is it worth it? And a lot of people don't think so. But for this study, it's you, you can't disregard the differences and say, oh, the reason the, the um, like tax rates are so much higher in Canada is because at least they're paying, the governments are responsible for health care because, again, U.S. governments, federal and state, are spending comparable shares of GDP on public health expenditures. So that's not explaining the disparity. So the Canadian governments are taxing a lot more, even taking into account that they spend a lot on health care. I was going to ask, they are spend, or they are taxing a lot more. So are you able to dive into how uh, they could spend better or... W- what is feasible, I guess, in terms of when you talk about bringing uh, the trend back and, and reversing the trend of increasing taxes, how do governments go about doing that without, uh, as they will claim anyways, that it comes at the that the expense of uh, the quality of services that are provided? Well, sure. So great, great question. Um, so one thing is, especially the longer the time frame, you know, there are what's called dynamic effects. And so when you start getting tax rates that are above 50%, where you know, you're taking more than half of what somebody generates on the margin, there really is a disincentive effect there. And so scaling it back a smaller amount, you know, that over time, it might, quote, pay for itself, depending, again, how long the time frame is. So I think on that element, it's not the, the trade-off isn't as severe as one would think. And I think elsewhere, um, you know, not, not to get, there's no magic bullet here, but the Fraser Institute, you know, which is the one that put out this study, we have all sorts of recommendations just showing how you can rely more on the private sector and voluntary solutions to social problems rather than the government spending more money on it. So I, I would just you know, sort of give that generic answer that the government, um, even though it has a lot of social issues that seem important, sometimes perhaps if the government tries to scale back what it's doing and to allow the voluntary private sector to fill the void, 
that's one way that you can achieve it while saving money and not giving up essential services. In the corporate world, it's kind of like trickle-down economics. It's the same kind of principle as what you you would say here is, hey, if you bring, uh, if you lower tax rates, for example, is it gives more, uh, more of an opportunity to spend, uh, more of an opportunity to use that money in the way that it, it should be meant for, in a sense. Yeah, I think so. And I, let me just say, and I know certain, especially in the United States, certain uh, policy wants have pushed that line to, you know, s- such that people don't, you know, they, they try to make it sound like a magic thing. It's, oh, it's all going to pay for itself. But again, just I would remind people, like, consider when it comes to carbon dioxide emissions, the point of having a carbon tax, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, is that, oh, it changes behavior. People will emit less carbon if you tax it. And so what we're saying is if you have a high marginal tax rate on people earning income, don't be surprised if people change their behavior. When you tax something, people do less of it, whether you're talking about carbon dioxide emissions or earning high income levels. So, so yes, here as well, especially if provinces are competing for potential businesses that, you know, if they, if they lower their tax rate, and we have studies documenting this, you get more business startups, for example, the lower that top marginal income tax rate is. You made a, a point in in sort of the the uh, write up and and some of the stories I've been reading about how federal and provincial governments should consider reversing this upward trend of taxation. But I'm wondering, do you have any recommendations or considerations that Canadians or Albertans should be uh, keeping in mind as especially we head into not only a provincial election in the next month or so, but also a federal uh, election coming up in the next six months. Well, sure, and, and you raise a good point there, too. I just want to point out to people that you know, a lot of these changes we're talking about in the tax code are relatively recent, so it's not as if you know, the, the Canadian structure and approach to social issues was just inaugurated three or five years ago. So you know, a lot of these changes are very specific, so to undo them doesn't mean throwing away the Canadian approach to policy. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as other specifics, yeah, I mean, there's lots of things, too, like perhaps giving more freedom in labor markets, you know, through measures that are comparable to what the United States is called right to work, where your unions can't compel workers to contribute if they haven't voted to be in the union. Things like that just to free up labor markets so it doesn't involve a direct expense on the part of the government, just allowing more freedom for entrepreneurs to start new businesses. So I think that's one way of trying to reduce, um, you know, regulatory burdens on business startup that you could have the economy grow, grow the tax base without forfeiting revenue. Robert, I do appreciate the time and a little bit of a snapshot into your guys' latest report. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. City police looking for some help in identifying four people alleged to be involved in a Bitcoin fraud. You only knew it was a matter of time before someone would try to bilk you in the latest, I don't want to call call Bitcoin a fad, but certainly a new trend. And one of the reporters who's been working on it is our own uh, Lauren Pullen. Lauren, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Let's walk through the crimes themselves first and foremost and what are police saying about them and how they were perpetrated in the first place. Yeah, police are calling this a double spend. So in essence, uh, we know that Bitcoin is digital currency, so it's not something that you could hold in your hands there. So they're basically doing transactions twice. The first transaction is happening at an ATM, and there are about 100 uh, ATMs that do disperse cash from Bitcoin here in Calgary, but they are all across the country. And then moments after that transaction happens, Joe, they get on the phone or communicate to whoever else is involved in this to make a secondary transaction to take that same money out twice. 
This is a pretty uh, complex scheme by the sounds of it, because as, as I'm looking through the release, please say it. Uh, all the transactions happen between September 16th and September 26th, and 112 fraudulent transactions are made at these kiosks in seven cities, including here in Calgary. What do we know about the situation here in our city? We do know that most of those transactions did happen here in Calgary, 51 of them. And uh, the suspect who allegedly took all of the money from the ATMs uh, nabbed $92,000. So uh, just about half of uh, the $200,000 or $195,000 total of this whole crime ring. But uh, police are saying just that. They're saying because of the short time period between all of these, because they all targeted this one Bitcoin ATM company called Honey Badger Bitcoin based out of Vancouver, BC. So they're the ones that are the actual ATMs. They all targeted that same ATM. So there was some way in the system that they figured out. So they do believe that this is basically a cryptocurrency crime ring for uh, a great alliteration there for mm, you, Joe. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> what, are the consumers or the Bitcoin users at risk here? Is it the banks at risk here? How is that all working? Where's the money actually coming from? Yeah, the one on the hook for all of this right now is Honey Badger Bitcoin. I did ask if there is any sort of insurance policy. So basically the ATM themselves that delivered that cash aren't going to get it back uh, from what I know. I don't believe that there is insurance for them. It's not necessarily your own wallet being compromised if you do have your own Bitcoin. It's uh, someone else with Bitcoin removing it and then again removing it again but not being able to pay back uh, the amount that they have done twice, right? So the way that someone in our our newsroom kind of broke this down to me in a way that kind of made me wrap my head around it Mm -hmm. is, you know, we had uh, the checks that you could digitally uh, deposit right? and then there was the issue of people depositing and withdrawing them twice. Mm -hmm. So basically, before the one system is caught up, which is that ATM, another transaction is made to take that money. So then the ATM never actually gets that digital currency transaction. They never actually get the Bitcoin back in return. So they're the ones with the short end of the stick. And that is that company, Honey Badger Bitcoin, who is now uh, $200,000K in the hole. Wow, that's a lot of money. And it's going to be one that's got a lot of attention right now. If you want more information on the story, head on over to 77. CHQR.ca, or you can listen to the Global News Hour at 6, which you can hear right here on 770 CHQR, because I think Lauren Pullen's going to be uh, working on that story for sure. Lauren, I appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so again, 770CHQR.ca if you want to learn more on that story. Uh, it is, uh, I've also retweeted it at, uh, at Calgary Today on Twitter if you want to take a gander at the story in more in-depth. Because again, uh, just another one of those wrinkles when it comes to uh, the growing technology that we have at our hands. And uh, the uh, Bitcoin, I, again, I don't want to call it a fad. It's a trend that uh, certainly a lot of people are buying into. This is Calgary Today on 770CHQR. Water, water, it is certainly everywhere as the melt is officially upon us. Cities battling not only a deep frost, but also now you're getting the melt and you're starting to see water show up everywhere. And earlier today, the city held a bit of a news conference to update the situation. And one of the people who was part of that was Corey Colbrand, the manager of Wastewater and Stormwater here in, the, here in Calgary. He joins us now. Corey, thanks so much for the time. You're very welcome. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about this big thaw that we are hoping for, I think. But at the same time, there does come with it a few warnings with it. And what is so what are some of those things that people need to be keeping in mind as the temperature does warm up? 
Yeah, that's right. We're seeing sort of a gradual trend into the positive territory here over the next few days, but we're seeing uh, what looks like maybe a more significant trend into the weekend of increases. So, you know, we really want people to, to just be aware of that melting snow and, you know, may cause some pooling on the city streets. And so we just want to make sure that people are aware and, and thinking about um, what, what we can do and then how the citizens themselves can, can help play a role. Mm-hmm. And what kinds of roles can citizens play? Well, really, what we would we would ask uh, citizens to do is just think about the catch basins in their in their area and know where the the water may be starting to pool or or drain towards, and you know where it's safe and practical to do so would be you know to to dig a little channel in the snow or ice if it's built up uh, built up just so we can um, allow some of that water to drain towards the catch basin. Um, you know, certainly the, we're going to see some pooling of water. I mean, the the system is designed to slowly drain water away um, just because we don't want to inundate our stormwater system. Um, but, you know, just, you know, where it's safe, where it's practical, create that channel for the water to flow. Um, and really, if if after about 90 minutes or two hours, uh, we would just be, you know, asking people to call 311 or use the 311 mobile app and take a picture, um, you know, so that we can we can be aware of the situation and where we might need to send crews. Um, we know we're into some some deep frost this year, and uh, the catch basin systems are really shallow, and they come to surface. Really, that's the whole point is to drain that water away. Um, but we may be in some situations where we've got some frozen catch basins, and those are really the ones that we want to be able to deal with. Um, ourselves and uh, just so that citizens can let us know where those hot spots are and we'll be able to prioritize them and be able to deal with them. That's going to be one of the challenges uh, as you mentioned with those catch basins and how deep that uh, fro- uh, the frozen ground does go is that creates a whole other set of challenges. So I assume uh, patience is going to be a virtue for some in terms of expecting the water to go away lickety split. Absolutely. And so, you know, certainly you're going to see some water pooling. We would just ask, you know, to to have a look, see if it's actually the water has a pathway to, to get to the catch basin. And if it's not going away after, you know, if you if you notice it and after about, you know, 90 minutes or, or 120 minutes, if that water hasn't gone, that's when we would ask that you sort of make a record of it, call 311 or use the mobile app. Um, you know, pictures really are worth a thousand words. It, it tells us sort of the, the scale of the problem and, you know, it allows us to prioritize because we're really looking at things like, okay, there's, you know, uh, a life safety issue or, or uh, you know, that we've got a major uh, traffic thoroughfare that's impacted by water that's not draining um, or certainly things like property damage. Those are the things that we want to get after first, um, but know that we are tracking all of the catch basin issues and we will get to them on a priority basis. That's one of the challenges, too, is because there was so much snow, especially this last uh, couple of weeks, the uh, last couple of months here, is there. I noticed it on the walk this morning, was that there's a lot of snow piled up. And so what ended up happening was there's a bit of a melt. And then the sidewalk, which was perfectly clear last night, not so clear because there's ice there. Is there anything you would recommend in terms of people trying to alleviate some of those issues where it's not even that it's pooling anywhere, it's just because there's so much water and so much snow left to melt that it's the free, uh, the stream is almost freezing overnight. 
Absolutely. And we're going to go through those freeze-thaw cycles <laughs> for a little mm-hmm. while yet. Um, and certainly, yeah, as, as you're moving, uh, you know, snow either off your driveway or, or trying to clear some snow from catch basins, you know, piling it up on, on your lawn or on the boulevards is kind of best because it allows for that slower melt and even some of the absorption into, you know, grass and lawns. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really it would be kind of thinking about, you know, those where it is melting in sidewalks, uh, you know, laying out a bit of salt even, you know, later in the evening so that you don't end up with that really icy situation in the morning. But, um, you know, those are the kinds of things is just trying to, you know, look at things and, and uh, sort of evaluate how how you can not let the snow melt uh, too much or allow it for that s- slower snow melt and, and get to the places where it really needs to go. Any tips or tricks for back alleys? Because I know a lot of people with their ba- with their garages, for example, in the back alley might be looking and arriving home, finding a little bit of maybe water in their back, uh, one of the corners, that kind of thing, because of, you know, maybe the snow hasn't been uh, taken away like they would be on a street. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it really is sort of thinking about how, how you could best sort of help direct the water flow or that drainage, you know, towards the closest catch basin. Um, you know, certainly we'll, we'll be dealing with the catch basin issues. And so the, the better channel or the better pathway towards that catch basin, the better, really. That, that's mm-hmm. really what we would ask is just sort of keep an eye out for those things. Tips and tricks, but also uh, lack of headaches down the road is probably a much better way of looking at it. So, uh, Corey, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Earlier on today, Councillor Drew Farrell was joined by a number of other dignitaries, stakeholders, you name it, and they navigated downtown Calgary as well as the LRT and the Plus 15 system, but they all had some a different way of going about it. It's her annual accessibility tour to get a gauge of how the city's doing on that front, and Councillor Farrell does join us now. Uh, thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. Talk about the tour that you did today and some of the findings that you might have uh, come across over the course of, of your trek. Well, we, we do a tour every year. This is the third annual accessibility tour, and we choose a little bit of a different route and a bit of different theme and invite civic leaders who can influence decision-making. So this year we traveled onto the train, which is not as easy as it sounds, um, and, and then went through the Stephen Avenue stopped at the convention center and debriefed with with people who attended. We had members of the Calgary Planning Commission and our Urban Design Review Panel, people in the building industry, planners, influencers. Um, Giancarlo Carrock came today, so that was good to have another member of council. And then we talk about our experiences and the disabilities that we experience are our site, so... People go in blindfolded with white canes, wheelchairs, as well as earphones so people can experience the city without hearing. And, and it, it, it's, it's quite fascinating what you notice when you're using those implements and experiencing those disabilities. And it's, you know, a two-hour two hour tour that we do, and it's a huge eye-opener for everyone who attends. Mm, talk a little bit about the transformation from that first year to today and the differences that you're noticing, if any. 
Well, we, we certainly know more about what we don't know. And when you're able-bodied, you just travel through the city without thinking about things. But when you're experiencing a disability, life becomes very difficult and very isolating. So, example, just getting on to the train with a wheelchair for our old trains, we don't have accessible doors for every train. And so you're kind of guessing where the where the accessible door and wheelchair ramp is and it, and it takes too long. We missed we missed an, a train and had to wait for another uh, it, going blind with a white cane there that's incredibly uneven surfaces on Stephen Avenue lots of sandwich boards getting in the way lots of impediments so we we know there are concepts called urban braille. It's how to design um, a public realm with sort of a clear line of sight and as well as using contrast. Those are things that are, as we build our city, we can implement with with new, with our new developments. And we're talking about developing the Green Line and you know, new event center and arts commons. We can embed accessibility in all of those things. Um, but it's also how do you retrofit the, the community after the fact when when life cycle maintenance needs to be done to ensure that we we're building universal design you bring up a great point and i remember a few years back a gent in front of me at the c train tried to get into the train and ended up getting stuck and it's mm-hmm. one of those things that again you kind of take for granted it's one of those issues that you don't think about when you have uh two feet and you're walking and nothing's impeding you even something simple like the the last uh, number of weeks with the amount of snowfall there hasn't been a lot of melt yet i'm sure that was probably even an issue that might get overlooked in the grand scheme of things is how slick are some of the sidewalks if you're blind you're not going to see that ice until you're right on top of it yeah and and even today we saw a lay-by so a drop-off for vehicles but there was a windrow of snow blocking the 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 drop-off and also no wheelchair ramp and so there was no ability for somebody in a wheelchair to be able to access the side of of the convention center that's a major public building owned by the city of calgary so there are so many little things that could be done to improve accessibility and we have no understanding about isolating it is when you have to you have to think way ahead about your trip there's no ability to be spontaneous and good portion of the city is blocked off from you. You're not welcome to participate because it's it's not accessible. So we we know better and we endeavor to do better. The cool thing about the outcome of these is we sit down and we just the conversation is just vibrant and buzzing with ideas because it's it it really is an eye opener for people about about what life is like with a disability and we all will experience a disability at some point in our lives but what what we can we each do to make it better and a number of people today volunteered to organize tours similar tours for people in their company and that's what i urge is it should be an onboarding for people in our planning department and our transportation department our planning commission and and anyone who's involved in you know constructing city buildings to onboard have an experience like this and and then hire the experts to ensure that we create a seamless environment for people. It's one thing to talk, Councillor, about 
uh, all of the situations downtown. You talked about Stephen Avenue. You talked about uh, getting on and off the train downtown. But how do you extend the conversation into the burbs, into the outer edges of Calgary, where it's not as pedestrian uh, heavy, I suppose, as maybe the downtown might be? Well, I think it, it it shouldn't be unique to the downtown. Mm-hmm. Downtown, we've got a highest concentration and a lot of projects going on, so there's a huge opportunity. But as we build new communities, ensure that the playgrounds are multi-age, multi-ability. Uh, uh, visibility is a really interesting concept where you build a, a building so that even if um, a house, for example, you don't have somebody with a disability living in the house, the first floor is at least visitable so people who have disabilities can come and visit you. Those are concepts you can incorporate in in new communities. And, and as well, I'm encouraging people who are interested in this topic and have the ability to influence to organize their own tours and and experience what it's like and and help them make better decisions. So all my council colleagues, I'm certainly encouraging them to organize their own tours. It doesn't have to be my tour. There are lots of opportunities to learn through other mechanisms. Absolutely. Drew, I do appreciate the time and a little bit of insight into your your trip earlier today and looking forward to seeing what happens at the council level. Thank you. It was a good day. We've got some we've got some notices of motion. John Carlo and I have been scheming. So watch for some some updated notices of motion. Will do. Uh, Councillor Drew Farrell joining us is again. She uh, had her annual accessibility tour. About I believe she had about forty people, whether they be fellow council members, uh, people in the community, that kind of thing. Who they were they were going around in wheelchairs. They were going on uh, blindfolded, that kind of thing, just in an attempt to understand and have a little bit of uh, a, a bit of empathy towards those who have those disabilities. And I got harken back to that one uh, that one day again. I think it was like three or four years ago, uh, standing on a platform downtown Calgary and young gent in a wheelchair trying to get on the the C train and couldn't because his tires got stuck, right? And it's little things like that that will make or break your decision-making process and whether you want to do something. It, no different even now. And, and I, harp, I harp on those who don't shovel their sidewalks during the winter. I'm going to praise those who did. During the course of uh, the morning, I decided finally my dog was getting a little stir crazy. So I decided to take her for a little bit of a walk and went on an extended walk. And those who uh, cleared their sidewalks prior to the melt, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because it made a world of difference. To those who didn't, you're going to forever be known as that neighbor who was lazy. Because man, oh man, there were probably in my block seven or eight houses that decided, oh, I'll just let Mother Nature take care of it. And then everything melted and then froze overnight. And so I might as well have been wearing skates. I think you can do a little bit better. So aim for next time. Well, just get a shovel. It's not that tough. And again, I go back. There's there's a really good trick that I found with uh, shoveling the sidewalk is your first swipe should be right down the middle of the sidewalk. And then you can just do little short shovels on each side it takes no time and it's super effective i wish i would have thought of that instead of trying to go all the way down just one you know do five passes you do the little short ones way easier on the back should have probably told you that prior to snow falling sorry keep that in your back pocket for next if you or 
Get a snowblower and then you don't have to worry about throwing your back out. Something I'm thinking about for next year. It's Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Thanks so much for listening to the Calgary Today podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. When you do, don't forget to write the show and leave a comment. Until next time, my friends.